Okay, so if you have your Bible open and find the book of Exodus, we have, I feel like it may feel a little bit like secret church this morning, uh, we have a big chunk of scripture to cover. Uh, we're going to cover chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 7, verse 7. So, I hope you have taken time already to read through those chapters. I tried to post that, that chunk and say, this is the, these are the chapters we're studying. And I tried to do that a few days ago, give you time to, to read through those ahead of time, especially when we're warp speeding it through like this. It's really going to help you to uh, have read through it all on your own. But these chapters chronicle the first encounters of Moses with the Lord, um, you know, in the, in the burning bush, and, and as well his first encounters both with going back to the people of Israel as well as going to Pharaoh uh, with the command that he received from God. Last week we looked at the first two chapters, which um, will probably be in hindsight now, thinking it's one of the shorter sections that we'll look at in this series that was mainly focused on the birth of Moses and his early life until he fled into the wilderness, which is where we find him at the beginning of our passage for today. We saw in those early chapters how, just to re recap a little bit of what I said last week, we saw how in those early chapters how God was providentially guiding the early life of Moses in such a way, and, 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 and that by extension, the Holy Spirit providentially guiding Moses to record it in such a way to illustrate how, how Moses followed in his own life the same course of events that Israel as a whole would later uh, experience in the, the bigger exodus uh, in the book of Exodus. So, in other words, Moses was in his own life a little microcosm, a little forerunner uh, uh, of, of the kind of exodus in miniature that the whole people of Israel would experience in their delivery out of, out of Egypt. And we saw that all of that was even pointed forward to an even bigger exodus through Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. Well, we have in our chapters today a deeper window into the, into the beginnings of, um, of, of that greater exodus that Moses' early life was foreshadowing. It begins, just a little survey, it begins... Um, our passage with one of the most well-known pa passages in all the Bible, chapter, for, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, Moses meeting God in the burning bush. Um, we actually began this series two weeks ago, uh, that overview of all of, we, we started with that passage, we read it already. But then, after that passage with the burning bush, it just issues into this long back and forth between Moses and, and, and God with God commissioning Moses to go to the people and then to go to Pharaoh and, and, uh, and, and, and then Moses doubting and Moses seeking reassurance and, and a way out. And then God reassures him again. Moses actually goes to the people. They believe him initially. Then Moses goes to Pharaoh. It doesn't go well. Um, in fact, things go terribly. And then the people resent Moses and Moses goes back to God and says, Why? I don't understand. God speaks to him again, prepares him to go to Pharaoh a second time, and that's where our passage ends today. Uh, it actually, uh, the, the end of our passage today, if you read it ahead of time, you know, chapter 7, verse 7, it sort of leaves you in a suspenseful place 
wondering how the next meeting with Pharaoh is going to go. And, um, and considering that the next section that we'll study in this book after this are the plagues, uh, it would appear that the next go-around will be different than the first one goes here. But to get a flavor of our section for this morning, there's no way in the world that we can read the whole thing. I want to start by reading a passage, part of chapter 5 and part of chapter 6. So I want to read from chapter 5, verse 15, through chapter 6, verse 13. So we're going to pick up in 515. This is, this is after... This is after Moses went to Pharaoh the first time. Pharaoh didn't like it. And so uh, he had commanded the people to make, they, they were not going to provide the straw for their bricks. Verse, chapter 5, verse 15, Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. I mean, that's some bold foreman right there. The fault is in your own people, but he said, but he said, the Pharaoh said that is, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done this evil? To, why have you done evil to this people? Why, why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of, this land, out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. That is, by my name, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them. To give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses thus spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of, this, out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel 
out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Lord, I, 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 what we read, this, this uh, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 7, it's, uh, it is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And Lord, we have a lot of ground to cover in your word today, and I pray that you would, you would uh, please um, give us eyes to see. Oh, first of all, I pray that you make time slow down. Um, and, and, and make time slow down and make it, make it in our minds go by quickly at the same time. Uh, would you give us eyes to see the truth here? Would you, give us, would you give us minds to understand it? Would you give us uh, hearts to embrace, embrace what you would admonish us? Because you do, there's much in here that you would admonish us uh, in our own lives to do. Give us wills to obey. Give me the help that I need to teach and please give us all eager ears to hear pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, there is a ton that we could focus on and learn over the course of four plus a few ver- four chapters plus a few verses, but just trying to see the big picture of, of this whole passage from chapter 3 to early part of chapter 7, there are four things that I want us to think about, four broad themes that I think are highlighted here that kind of follow the storyline of, the, of these chapters pretty well. So if you're taking notes, here's what I want us to learn about this extended passage. First, I want us to think about the presence of God. The presence of God from that famous encounter of Moses with the Lord in chapter 3 at the burning bush, specifically chapter 3 verses 1 through 10. It probably goes without saying that we could spend our entire time on this one episode, but for the sake of time, we I promise you, I'm just going to hit some high spots. You're going to feel like we're going to move on past this burning bush and be like, you didn't talk about what... It, I just, it is what it is. The presence of God, what we can learn about it from the burning bush. Number two, for the rest of chapter three and for most of chapter four, I want us to consider the patience of God. The patience of God. And in, in the rest of chapter three and, then, and, the, and most of chapter four, I want us to zoom in on Moses' interactions with God that demonstrate not only a lot about Moses and by extension us, but through that, the incredible patience of God when he deals with our fears and our anxieties. Um, We will see in Moses how groundless our fears and our anxieties almost always are to begin with, even still and even, even especially because of this, the patience of God is clearly seen. Third, we're going to consider... the events at the end of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5 and just briefly consider the providence of God. The providence of God in in the experience of of Moses with the people of Israel and with Pharaoh after he obeys. Like he obeys what God had clearly told him to do and it does not go as he expected. So, I mean, does that teach us anything about how God operates um, in his providential sanctification of his people. That even when we obey, it does not go like we thought it would go, maybe should go. And then finally, we're going to see a lot of this come together in chapter 6 and in the early part of chapter 7 as we see the purpose of God more clearly stated. This section, I think, will help us understand more clearly the wisdom of God and the reason of God behind his infinite patience with Moses and his often, at least to us, mysterious providence. 
um, in our lives. So these chapters are really instructive. I wish we could spend more time on these chapters but, and, and just really squeeze all the good we can get out of it, but there's some good things we have to think about. So let's start at the beginning in chapter 3. Turn over there. Moses famously encounters the Lord in the burning bush. What can that teach us about the presence of God? Chapter 3 opens with Moses still living in the wilderness that, that he had fled into after he had, remember, uh, murdered an Egyptian man who, who was abusing one of the Israelites, one of his people, murdered that man, tried to hide the evidence, was found out. Pharaoh fled, uh, like pursued him. He fled into the wilderness. This chapter opens. He's still in that wilderness. It's the wilderness where at this point of chapter 3, he had been for 40 years. 40 years. How do we know that? Well, you piece together a lot of different evidence from all over the Bible. So, Oddly enough, you start in the New Testament, in, in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, when Stephen is about to be martyred as the first martyr, before he is put to death, he has this long discourse. I've, I've told you many times, if you want to try your hand at, at memorizing a longer, more extended passage of Scripture, you, you actually could, you could do a whole lot worse than memorizing Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, because you could... In, in not just have a, an extended passage of Scripture in your mind, but one that teaches you the whole storyline of the Old Testament. It's, it's really quite remarkable. But in that address, in, in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, Mo, uh, uh, Stephen explains that Moses was 40 years old when he murdered that Egyptian man. Where did he get that from? That was according to a well-known and well-established, at that point, rabbinic tradition um, based on the fact that Deuteronomy 34.7 says Moses died when he was 120 years old. And it tells us that uh, Exodus chapter 7, verse 7, in our, uh, the last uh, verse of our passage today, tells us that Moses was 80 years old when he went out to confront Pharaoh to let the people go. And so the, that, that rabbinic tradition that Stephen was relying on in Acts chapter 7 sort of divided Moses' life into fourths. And the, those last three quarters of his life is what they were talking about. He was 40 when he murdered the Egyptian. He was 80 when he confronted Pharaoh. And he was 120 when he died, right? And so when we enter chapter 3, Moses was doing what he had been doing for the past four decades, which was shepherding the flock that belonged to his father-in-law. And he brings this flock to, to the edge of... Mount Horeb, which, by the way, is the same as Mount Sinai, same mountain, two different names for the, for the same mountain. And verse 2 says that the angel of the Lord, by the way, when I said it's the same mountain, I pointed that out because this is going to be a very important mountain in the, in the, in the flow of Exodus. But anyway, he leaves, so he, the angel of the Lord appears to Moses. And maybe when you read the angel of the Lord, you have some idea or some inkling of who that might be. The angel of the Lord makes a number of appearances in the, in the Old Testament. And if you had been like your Bible reading plan started at Genesis 1-1 and, and, you're, and now you're in Exodus chapter 3 in your reading plan, you would have even by this point already encountered the angel of the Lord a few times. I mean, even in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 16, the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar. In Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham. And now he appears to Moses here. And what you may have surmised about the angel of the Lord, even in Genesis, is, is what you may have surmised is made even more explicit here, that the angel of the Lord is actually an appearance of God himself. 
When the angel of the Lord, for example, appears to Hagar in, in Genesis chapter 16, if you read it carefully, when he speaks, he is speaking as God himself. He is speaking in the first person uh, of, as God. For example, Genesis 16.10, The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. No mere angel can promise that or do that. In Genesis 22, when, when Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac, it was the angel of the Lord who called out here, Stop! It was the angel of the Lord who did that and who provided the ram for him to sacrifice instead of Isaac. And when the, when the, the, the angel provided the ram, Genesis twenty two fourteen says, Abraham therefore called the name of that place, the Lord Yahweh will provide. So up to this point in the Old Testament, you already have the strong impression that when the angel of the Lord appears, it is the Lord himself appearing. And this appearance to Moses in Exodus 3 does nothing to dispel that intuition. Because again, even here, the angel speaks as God himself, even later declaring his name to be the covenant name of God, I am who I am, Yahweh. But even beyond that here in these early verses of chapter 3, you have other factors here that, that confirm that further. For example, he appears in a burning bush. A burning bush. Like, and in Genesis already before this, you've already had the presence of God in Genesis indicated by fire. Think of Genesis 15 when God confirmed His covenant with Moses. What, what, what image displayed the presence of God in that covenant ceremony? God was, God was uh, represented by a smoking fire pot that passed through the, the, the pieces of the animals. And later in Exodus, after this passage, how is God going to go before them in the wilderness? In the daytime by a pillar of cloud, but at night in a pillar of fire. Okay, and the fact that Moses is here told to remove his shoes and not to come near to the bush anticipates what God himself will tell all the people of Israel from that same mountain in Exodus 19. Don't even come close to this mountain, right? before he reveals the law to Moses. Even though this encounter is presented as an encounter with the angel of the Lord, it is manifestly an, uh, an encounter with God himself. And there are several things to note about the presence of, uh, of, of God with Moses that I think we should note here. Contrasts that are, that are encouraging about his presence. When we sing the song, Holy, 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 um, there's a beautiful contrast that we sing about God in that song. He's merciful and mighty. Merciful and mighty. And this episode is an, is an example of why we sing that about God. It's a very biblical thing to say about Him. We see both of those characteristics about the Lord here. Clearly we see His might and His majesty in what we've already seen, in His appearance as, as fire, in His warning to keep distance. In Moses, for example, in uh, verse... Six, in Moses hiding his face and fearing to look at God. But his mercy is also seen in his coming to Moses at all. In the first place. Moses, who was not seeking God, he was just watching sheep like he had done for 40 years. Hoping that 
his sin would still not find him out from 40 years earlier. And again, Moses came to him, came to him, Moses, who was a sinner, guilty of murder. Merciful and mighty. We also have this contrast in John's gospel about Jesus in the, in the, first, in the first chapter that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, that contrast. And we see that contrast present here in, in chapter 3 in this encounter, which gives you a big clue, by the way, that this theophany uh, in the burning bush is supposed to point us forward and make us anticipate Christ himself. We see grace and truth. Grace in, in that... You see grace in the fact that you've you got to understand that Moses removing his shoes did not atone for his sin, right? And yet he was still not consumed, just as the bush was not consumed by the fire. And not only that, but the Lord comes to Moses here not with a message of judgment against him, which would be, um, not be surprising, but of salvation. We see truth also, though, in that we learn yet again about the presence of God here, that God could only appear to man, to sinful man, in a mediated form. In a mediated form. That means uh, he could not see the pure, unfiltered glory of God. God had to veil his glory in such a way that Moses could, could look upon him. And even then he was afraid to look. Clearly, this is, and by the way, that, that too points forward to Christ because Jesus Christ was God himself come, but he had to veil himself in human flesh. You know, and, and, and because he veiled himself in human flesh, they could look at him and still yet say they were looking at uh, the, the very monogonase of God full of grace and truth, the only, only begotten of God. So clearly this is the Lord beginning his saving work in the story of Exodus to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt, making good on the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis 15. But it's, it, it is him not just starting his saving intentions, but his, his plan and his purpose to use Moses as an instrument to accomplish his purpose um, and, and through whom to display his power and glory. But notice the order here. Yes, God tells Moses in verse 10, for example, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He, says, he tells him that in verse 10. I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. But only after he had already told him and assured him in verse 8, I have come down to deliver him, them out of the hand of, of the Egyptians. And to bring them out of that land. Clearly, God was simply tasking Moses not to be the redeemer, just the instrument in the redeemer's hand, right? Who would accomplish this work? Forty years removed from his last encounters with them, God is going to send Moses back to the people of Israel to declare to them God's will and also declare it to Pharaoh. And you would think, you would think that, that Moses, having experienced... This fearful and awe-inspiring vision of the Lord, you would think that Moses would be confident to do whatever this, this God that I'm afraid to even look at. That I have to remove my shoes. I will do whatever you want me to do. Knowing that this is the God who's going to be with me 
Incidentally, those are the same assurances you think. I've never seen a burning bush. They are the same assurances we have. They are. I mean, uh, and we'll see this more when we come to the next point. We, We don't need to come down too hard on Moses in what we're about to see. Because I believe that in, in, in his response to this encounter with God in the burning bush, we see a picture of ourselves. Uh, and, and on that note, we come to the next section of the story and see Moses' response to the vision and God's commissioning him. Not only do we see ourselves in Moses, but through that we see the patience of God. From the outside looking in, it kind of seems incredible how Moses is going to respond to this, this vision at the burning bush. I really love the, the perspective that Alec Motier, he's, the, he's one of the great Old Testament commentators. Here's, here's the, the, the take he has on Moses here. There is a most important lesson to be learned from standing back and viewing the whole picture. The fact of the matter is that Moses needed tons of reassurance. He was chronically uncertain about himself. That episode in Egypt all those years ago, 40 years ago when he was chased out of Egypt by Pharaoh. That episode in Egypt all those years ago must have really knocked the stuffing out of him. All the old bounce was gone, and the man who was now not prince of Egypt but shepherd of Midian needed crowds of reassurance, tender, tender loving care, and hand-holding. And he's right. You really see this when you zoom in on Moses' response to God that in this section that runs from 3.11 to, to uh, about 4.26. Um, immediately, immediately on the heels of this uh, jaw-dropping encounter with God. I mean, in which God assures Moses that he himself would sovereignly fulfill his promise to deliver his people out of Egypt and out of slavery, that that God himself would do it. I'm just using you, Moses, merely my instrument before Israel and before Pharaoh. All you need to do is just show up and watch me work. Just do what I say. Be my puppet. Right? Moses replies in verse 11, Who am I? Who am I? Who am I that that I should go? God replies with a steady and ready assurance in verse 12 and to which Moses replies in verse 13 with another excuse well what shall I say who am I to go what am I going to say to them as if God hadn't already told him so Moses switches to another excuse look at his next excuse in chapter 4 verse 1 they won't believe me they won't believe me Well, when the Lord replies yet again with a ready assurance to him, he has even further excuses. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. Well, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow to speech and and, and, and tongue. The Lord answered him yet again. He was like, by the way, do you remember I made mouths? I'm the one that made your mouth. I'm the one that made it just exactly the way I made it. I make men mute and deaf, seeing or blind. I'm the one that does that. So what's the point of you worrying about how eloquent or not eloquent you are? That's what he says. At which point Moses just gets to what he's really feeling. He's out of excuses. Who am I? What am I going to say? They're not going to believe me. Uh, You know, I mean, I'm not eloquent. He runs out of excuses. And so he simply says in chapter 4, verse 13, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Please send someone else. That's amazing. 
A couple of things to point out here. Notice the perspective of Moses in all of these. Who am I? What will I say? They won't believe me. I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. His willingness to obey, even after that amazing encounter at a burning bush that was not consumed, his willingness to obey was weighed by his perception of his own abilities. That isn't unique to Moses. I can't tell you how often it has been true of me that I know that the Lord has clearly asked me to things to do as his follower, to be a fisher of men, to bear witness to his name, promises never to leave me or forsake me. You, you, you only need to be faithful, but rather than remembering him, remembering his promise, remembering his presence, and finding assurance and finding encouragement, I look at myself, my ability, my feelings, and what it creates in me when I look at myself is fear. And rightly so. And ultimately, disobedience to the Lord. Now, 4.14 does say that the anger of the Lord was kindled toward Moses at this point. Please send somebody else. I don't blame God for kindling his anger at that point. And rightly so. But that being true, even that being true, that right there just highlights even more the point of the of the, uh, that, 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 the of the amazing patience that God shows toward Moses. And by extension, since God doesn't change, toward us, the patience we can say, he know, we know he explains toward us. With every excuse, with every excuse that Moses gives to the Lord, the Lord reassures him of his presence and his promise. In chapter 3, verse 11, who am I? 3.12, God says, I'll be with you. When Moses said in 3.13, what will I say? 3.14, here's my name. Here's what you say. When Moses says in chapter 4, verse 1, they won't believe me, God replies, here's some signs that you will perform that are undeniable. All you got to do is throw your stick on the ground and watch what I do. Well, when Moses says in 4.10 that I'm not eloquent, God says, I'm sovereign over your mouth. Even when Moses says in 4.13, please, some, please send somebody else. God replies in two ways. One is to say in the very next verse, 4.14, that, all right then, your brother Aaron is more eloquent than you. He can be your spokesperson. God did not have to make that concession. But God said, I'm still only going to speak to you. I'm not speaking to Aaron. The other, the other was to say in verse, chapter 4, verse 19, Moses, even humanly speaking, that Pharaoh that you're scared of, he's dead. He's dead. You don't have to be afraid. And it's at this point in the flow of the story that, that we encounter what a lot of people, when they read through Exodus, believe is just, what in the world? It's just this random story. Stuck in the, when, 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 when in, all of a sudden in chapter 4 verse 24, God wants to put Moses to death because he has not circumcised his son. That's, that's exactly why God is angry here. Moses had not even circumcised his own son according to the commandment of God. 
And you find out here, Moses himself, still 40 years later, was not walking in simple obedience to the Lord, which, who knows, may have also contributed to his fears and his hesitance to, to, to what God was calling him to. His, his wife Zipporah circumcised her son and averted the wrath of God. But just consider, God knew, God knew that Moses had not circumcised his own son according to the Abrahamic covenant before he ever met Moses in the burning bush. Which illustrates even more mercy, grace, kindness, patience of God with Moses. He was so patient with Moses and so patient with us, answering every fear and every doubt that he had with the assurance of his presence, the assurance of his provision, the assurance of his power. But seeing this tendency in Moses and in us, I think it may give us some insight into what we see in the next story about the providence of God. I don't want to spend too much time here, but we do need to know what happens next in the story and what we can learn from it. So after all of his excuses, who am I? You know, they won't believe me, not eloquent. What am I going to say? Please send somebody else. We're never told in the story that Moses ever just came to a real feel-good place about obedience. We're never told that he shook off all his tendency to trust into himself, in, in himself. He never shook off his you know, trust in his own abilities or, his, or lack thereof. In fact, we'll see for sure that he, had, he didn't as the story progresses. Because um, twice in chapter 6, he's going to offer even more excuses that sound a lot like the ones from chapter 4. So this is a, this, this, this Moses can't get his eyes off himself and trusting in himself. This is a deep-seated tendency in Moses. And it is in us too, which is one reason why, not, certainly not the primary reason, I think chapter 5 happens the way it does. So at the end of chapter 4, I'm thinking chapter 4, verse 27 and following. At the end of chapter 4, Moses and Aaron get together and they go to the elders, they do obey. And they go to the elders of, of the people of Israel, and they tell them what God had told Moses. In chapter 4, verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words, Moses did the signs, and in verse 31, we're told, hey, the people believed them. And they rejoiced to know, hey, God, God knows about our affliction. And they bowed their heads in worship. Hey, off to a good start. And you would think, you would think, that this, again, would be a sign of confidence to Moses. Hey, I stepped out, I did it, and hey, they, they believe me. This is great. I can trust the Lord. But notice what in the providence of God happens. Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he, through Aaron, relayed to Pharaoh exactly what God had to say, which was at this point simply let my people go into the wilderness for three days to worship. What happens? Pharaoh doesn't listen. Life gets harder for the people. They're, they are told they would no longer be, ma- be provided straw for the making of their bricks. They would have to go out and find straw for themselves and still not ever reduce the number of bricks that they were making. 
It was so bad that in that passage we began with, in chapter 5, verse 15, the foremen of, of the Israelites, the workers, they came and they cried out to Pharaoh, pleaded with him boldly. I mean, boldly. They, they even t- like I said, they told him in, <laughs> in uh, verse 16, the fault is in your own people, Pharaoh. Pleaded with him to repent. The Pharaoh did not relent. And I want you to notice something here. I didn't highlight it when I read it first, but I think it's noteworthy. Look at verse 20 in chapter 5. When the foreman went to Pharaoh and they said, please relent, he doesn't relent, and they received the bad news, I'm not, I'm not letting up, you still got to make bricks without straw. They, they go, the foreman leave, leave the room where they were talking to Pharaoh. And verse 20 says, They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. I guarantee you. I mean, just because you you've been a kid. I guarantee you, they were waiting outside the door as soon as, and as soon as the, the, the foreman came out, Moses and Aaron were like, what did he say? What did he say? What does that indicate? To me, it, it, it can reveal that Moses was still not absolutely content for God to do his work in God's own way. It's as if, it's as if the thought process of Moses was like, well, Mo, Pharaoh didn't listen to me, so hey, foreman, why don't you go in and talk to Pharaoh? Maybe he'll listen to you. He didn't listen to me. Maybe he'll, he'll listen to you, which is why they were waiting outside the door when they came out. What did he say? Which that tells you that Moses still perhaps believed that it was up to human ingenuity. Pharaoh wouldn't listen to me. I couldn't do it. Foreman, maybe you can do it. Maybe you can convince him. Maybe he'll feel sorry for you completely forgetting that God had already told him in chapter 3, verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand and bring him out. So God had already told Moses there's nothing he could do to make it happen. Moses, they're not going to believe you. They're not going to believe the foreman either. Just be my mouthpiece, God said. I'll do it. I'll do it in my own way. But when Moses did not do that, what happened? At the end of chapter 5, verse 21, those foremen, representing all the people of Israel, said to him, The Lord look on you, Moses, and judge, because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses had to feel like he had done what God had asked. And he fell flat on his face. Hence, Moses cries out in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, just think about this prayer, by the way. O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why have why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, 
He has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people. That's a bold prayer. It's utter honesty from Moses. Like if Scripture ever teaches us anything, it is to be honest with God in prayer. That's, ex that's exactly what Moses felt like. I did what you asked me to do. You didn't deliver your people like you said you're gonna. It was honest for sure, but it was misguided. Like I said earlier, I don't think this was God's primary providential motive. But I do believe at least a... We're about to see that in the second point, by the way. In the last point, by the way. I do believe that at least a secondary providential motive of God here is to bring Moses to the end of himself. To let him fall flat on his face. To let him fail for as long as he was trusting in himself. God does that with us. Don't look strangely at Moses. We have the same thoughts. And very often, when God's providence is not always clear to us, when it is a difficult providence, and it isn't happening the way I thought it would, at least one aim of God is probably to rid me of my self-sufficiency. And to rid me of my trust in myself. And my resourcefulness more than in God and in His sovereignty. But that'll bring us finally to the purpose of God in all of this. To our final point this morning, consider with me quickly the purpose of God. Well, after Mo Moses utters his honest, bold, albeit misguided prayer to the Lord, the Lord was gracious to him yet again at the beginning of chapter 6 to meet with Moses again, not this time in a burning bush, but at least through his word to Moses. And what he gives him is more assurance of his purpose in all of this. Um, he assures him in chapter 6, verses 3 to 6, that he will still make good on his promise that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He will redeem his people, but he will do it for his own ultimate purposes. And very quickly, the rest of chapter 6 and the early verses of chapter 7 just confirm what we said in week 1 were the two main purposes of God in all that he does here. Um, the two main purposes of why he, he will cause all of these things to play out in this way. The two things are, one, to make his presence known among his people, to make his presence known and two, to make his glory shown to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh. It actually rhymes. You can remember it that way. What are God's two purposes in, in, in Exodus? To make his presence known and his glory shown. That's what he's about. Where do we see that here? We do. Notice, notice the emphasis in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Uh what he says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know, you, you Israel, shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will bring you into the land 
that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. But do you see? I will. T- I just won't take you to be my. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God in the land that I will show you. He will be their God. They will be His people. He will make it known His presence to them. Now, now look in the early part of chapter seven and look at the emphasis there, verses two through six. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people of Israel, my, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so just as he commanded. Now Moses was 80 years old. Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. What is God's emphasis there? I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will not listen to me. He will try with all his might not to let the people go. And then I'm going to bring great acts of judgment. And I'm going to bring them out anyway. And they will know that I'm the Lord and Pharaoh's not. Glory shown. What do you have right between those two passages? I said, we read in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, make his presence known. We, sh- we saw right in the first few verses of chapter 7, glory shown. What is right between those two passages? A genealogy. What? What in the world? Why is a genealogy of Moses stuck right here in the story? Well, obviously, one thing it does is it proves the historicity of Moses. Like, this really happened. Moses was real. Here's his mom and daddy. You know, like that. But I think it's doing way more than that here. Because if that is all that it was, Moses was a real guy, you could have put this at the front of the book. Why, why do you get to this crescendo of a story? Moses falls flat on his face. Hey, I want you to go to Pharaoh again. What's going to happen? Oh, by the way, here's the genealogy. Here's Here's what I think. Who wrote this book? Moses did. Why would he put his own genealogy of all places right here? I think he's doing it as a confession. I am just a man. I'm just a man. You can can look up my parents and my grandparents. I'm just a dude. And notice, notice what he immediately bookends. And Moses is writing this. Notice what he immediately bookends this genealogy with. It is, it, it is immediately bookended with God on the front end with God telling Moses to go back to Pharaoh a second time. And in verses 10 and 11, that's where he tells him that. And in verse 
chapter 6, verse 12, Moses says, how are they going to listen to me? Genealogy. And then as soon as the genealogy is good, it's like Moses says, oh, in verse 30, hey, do you remember when I said that? How, how are they going to listen to me? Moses just paints himself in the worst possible light right here. I think the emphatic answer is Pharaoh will not listen to Moses. He will listen to the Lord. God will get glory over Pharaoh. I think Moses intentionally makes us aware of his own weaknesses so that we would never make the mistake of, of thinking that what happened was anything but the sovereign act of God. And God sovereignly... Here's, here's, the, here's the final word, and we'll pray and we'll leave. God sovereignly made all of this happen, not just so that Pharaoh would know it, but so that Moses would know it and be glad about it. And that's how he works in our own lives, too. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift of Scripture, your word. Uh, it, is, it is more than interesting. It is life-giving because they bear witness to the life-giver, Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, and, 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 and uh, there is such wisdom found in its pages. I pray. There was a lot to think through this morning. I pray that uh, perhaps if we did not read Exodus 3, 1 through 7, 7 before we came today, I pray that as soon as we get home and finish lunch today, this is how we would spend the first part of our afternoon, to go back and read Exodus 3, 1 through 7, 7, having in mind all that we were able to think about this morning. Lord, thank you that you, you your presence is with us uh, through the, the, the mediator, Jesus Christ, who poured out his Holy Spirit on all who believe. Thank you, that, thank you that you're so patient with us and with our shortcomings and our failures and uh, errant tendencies. Thank you that, that you don't just leave us in that place, that you providentially work in our lives to show us the error of our ways and to bring us into uh, a more faithful walk with Christ and that you work out your purposes in our life, not just so that... Um, all will see, but that we particularly will see and be glad in you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.